1: Today on Investigates, I invite you to join the two space docks on the front porch of cyberspace. With a cool glass of lemonade and your feet up. As Bob Picardo and I pilot our mental spaceships and investigate our respective universes. Okay, I will just say, join me for part two of Robert Picardo on Gates McFadden Investigates. Who do you think you are? If you could be any age for, you know, a year any age that uh, you wished for, and you could play any part you wished for in Shakespeare. Which play? Which uh, part in which play would you like to do? You could do it on Broadway. You could do it in uh, your, your local gymnasium.
0: My acting teacher from high school always wanted to see me play Macbeth. So I probably would want to do that for him, he's gone now. I stayed friends with him, but the man who got me interested in theater, Ted Shakespeare, is his name. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, probably Macbeth. As a young man, I always wanted to do, I know it's not politically correct anymore, but I always, wa- Othello was the role I wanted to play in my hmm. 20s and 30s. I loved, I loved that play.
1: I can understand you're wanting to play that very, very much, mm-hmm. absolutely. It's a phenomenal role. Yeah, it's a phenomenal role. I saw mm-hmm. Avery Brooks um, Othello, and it was quite wonderful. He's a wonderful, wonderful Shakespearean actor. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That. I think I um, wish that I could have played Hamlet. Mm. I saw Diane Venora do Hamlet at uh, New York Shakespeare Festival. She was doing it, and uh, she hurt herself in the middle of production. She sort of collapsed, and I remember Joe Papp running from the audience. And sort of enfolding her in his arms. It was uh, even more dramatic than the play. I've had several female friends who have actually played uh, male roles, Shakespeare male roles. I have a friend, Natsuko Ohama, who's done uh, Lear, and it was extremely powerful. There's something so profoundly deep in these great parts of theater that It would be cool if everybody, no matter what your sex was, could experience playing them because they are such human conditions. You know, they really force you to explore betrayal and uh, lust and power and all of those things. You got to work on the Mamet play, Sexual Perversion in Chicago. Was that fun?
0: It was great fun. I was in the first produced David Mamet play in New York. Um, Wow. Yeah. And the way I got to be in it, I wasn't even in uh, actor's equity yet. I was uh, studying at Circle in the Square when I graduated Yale a year early. Once I got out of biology and into theater, Yale Yale's theater training was primarily, you know, literary. <laughs> you, you read a lot. Uh, you took theater history and memorized how many seats were in the great Dionysian theater before it burned down and then how many were in. The one when they rebuilt it, you know, things that really are important for an actor to know to have a successful career. Um, but uh, then I studied I, my teacher, uh, Nikos Sakaropoulos, who founded the Williamstown Theater Festival. I'm sure you know yep. him. Um, uh, and I studied with him both. at. I studied with him at Yale and I said, Nikos, I think I want to, you know, pursue a career in theater. Where should I train? He said, go to England. For those of you who don't know, this is how Nikos taught. You know, he was from Greece, but, you know, he had this way, you know, he taught like this, you know. So I said, Nikos, he said, go study in England. I said, well, I can't afford that. He says, well, then it doesn't matter. (laughs) That was his advice. That's (laughs) true. So so I thought, rather, uh, I'm going to punish him by following him. So he taught. In addition to teaching at Yale, he lived in New York and took the train up a couple days a week to teach at the Yale Drama School, and he taught undergraduates. Uh, He had one undergraduate class, which I'd been in a couple, I think twice. Um, I remember Harry Hamlin was the first actor I saw. Harry was a year older than me, and he was doing a scene my very first day in an acting class. Uh, So I studied with Nikos in New York at the two-year professional theater workshop, where they let you work. I picked a school because I knew I had to have a I needed to work as soon as I can. I could. So after my first year at Circle, I was cast in this production of Sexual Perversity in Chicago that had an equity cast, but at the time there was a big dispute between actors' equity and the... um, and the uh, the showcase the producers of showcase theaters because they were arguing about how many performances they could have without paying the actors right and i remember show, right. And, and equity wanted to keep it down to i think 12 performances and the the theater pe- owner said look we can't you know even without paying the actors we can't produce a show for 12 performances it's not financially feasible so so sexual perversity had been rehearsed with my a, a man who became one of my great friends in life, David Clennon, was playing my part, but he was, he was uh, equity. I didn't even know David at the time, but they canceled their production after they were fully rehearsed and hired non-equity actors so that they could run the show longer. And I got that mm-hmm. part, the part of Danny, the part that Rob Lowe played in the movie based on the play. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were That's a phenomenon. So the show was played with yeah. another David Mamet play called Duck Variations. And we were a huge hit. I was reviewed in, I believe, New York Magazine or something. I got an agent. It started my career playing that part. That's so cool. That's very cool. Do you think of yourself uh, more
1: as an L.A. person or a New York person? Like, were you the most comfortable? Forget the pandemic. That's changed a lot of things. But pre-pandemic, were you more a New Yorker or uh, an L.A. person?
0: Well, for years, I held on. You know, I I, I started my career in New York. I spent literally only four and a half years there. And I went from entering a theater school to doing my second lead on Broadway in four and a half years. So I had an extraordinarily lucky career. And when I left for California at age 25 to recreate the second Broadway role uh, in tribute with Jack Lemmon, um, I thought, oh, I'll just go out for six months and see what it's like. And then basically I stayed for 40 years. So I held on to my identity as a New York actor kind of as long as I could. But the fact is, right. you know, I've I i had I've had so much of my career has been on the West Coast that it would be insincere for me to think of myself as a New York actor anymore. But I do very much, I still feel very comfortable in New York. I've spent a lot. Before the pandemic, I had been, I'd spent... The bulk of the two years prior, uh, I'd spent more time in New York than L.A. working on a couple of television shows there. I did my first musical there, I mean, my first stage appearance in over 40 years. I did a, a musical that I also did in California called uh, Enter Laughing, based on the classic Carl Reiner book, playing the father of the mm-hmm. lead kid.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, that was great fun to be back on a New York stage. And I hope that this is what life before the pandemic. I thought, well, this is what life will be now. I'll do a little, do some television acting in New York, and keep up my you know health coverage, and then I'll do a play or two a year. That was my dream. And then, of course, you right. know, life intervened, and uh, I've been living out the pandemic uh, in uh, California, in Northern California, and I've come down a couple of times to work safely on uh, in LA, and I'm working on another show. I'm entering the COVID bubble on another show in about 12 days. And and then other jobs I've turned down. I even got hired for something. I was tested for COVID five times and ended up leaving the job because I didn't feel secure starting yeah, it. Yeah, you know, that's I thought, good. You know, I, uh, and you they have were to very take gracious about head. it. They let, they said anybody who doesn't want to move forward now that they've yeah. had several outbreaks in the crew, they let anybody leave. And I was the oldest guy <laughs> in the episode. And I thought, you know, working with actors in their twenties and thirties. Did you and get I said, sick gonna, after the I'm cruise?
1: A... Did you get sick after the cruise? I did not. And I did. And, uh, did you, several do of us did. you feel
0: that you had COVID? Did you I get do. tested for antibodies?
1: I did, but I got tested after—it was over three months, and they're unclear how long your antibodies stay. Um, Luckily, it was not a horrible case, but I was out of commission, really, for three weeks, and uh, it took a long time to get my energy back, but uh, I stayed at home. But again, I wasn't tested. I I would have certainly gone to the hospital had it gotten any worse, but uh, I— I just wondered because several people who were on the cruise, Naná thinks she had it, and she thinks that she probably gave it to me. <laughs> so <laughs> there were a couple of people who had it. Um, but luckily, if you were healthy, we were lucky that it didn't hit us harder, whatever it was. But the signs mm-hmm. were all, the symptoms were completely COVID, uh, loss yeah. of smell, all Well, you're that. not the
0: only person, as you know, there have been others who told me that, yeah. that they felt that. Yeah. And uh, we were very lucky that, A, nobody yeah. got seriously ill, and that it didn't you know sweep through the whole we the day right. that we stepped off the star trek cruise which was the 8th of the 8th or 9th of march i think the 8th it was a sunday morning and that very sunday Anthony Fauci said for the first time on Meet the Press, if I were over 65 years old, I wouldn't be getting on a cruise ship. And That's right. I was I over 65 and it just stepped off one. So we. we but knew I had the been worried kind of
1: all. I was worried all during the cruise. I was very, very careful. I had brought tons of sanitizers, hand sanitizers, Clorox wipes. I was very, very cautious. Uh, and had we not been under contract, I, I don't know if I'd gone because I was already worried about um, getting getting sick. But it ended up.
0: It, it everything's fine and uh we we all have survived, and in a strange confluence, I noticed on social media that you and I got our vaccines exactly at the same moment yesterday.
1: Isn't it perfect? I know mm-hmm. it's fantastic. I was at I was at the forum.
0: Were you? No, I was in uh, Northern California. So. Oh, that's uh, right. Of course, I, I of was course. not even in a mass site. I was. I went to a university hospital, and I. I mean, I had an appointment that I got. I signed up as soon as I could, but within an hour of each other, we both. And did you? And we both. Got Isn't the that Pfizer Vaccine.
1: But I certainly wanted to get it, and I'm very glad I did. So, mm-hmm. talk about what have the effect your two daughters have had on your life? Because you have two wonderful, wonderful daughters. I've met them both; they are just terrific. They adore their dad, as they should. But tell me, um, tell me an individual moment with each of them that is one of your more treasured moments.
0: Well, there, well, there's so many uh, to pick from. I might as well, since ultimately. Uh, The common bond between us and your listeners is is some level is Star Trek. I might as well start with a story when they were very young and I was cast on the show. Uh, You know, your kids, when you, when you, when daddy's an actor, I want, you wonder how much the kids really understand. Uh, You know, for example, on China Beach, which I did before Star Trek, I played a leading man, so I wore a hairpiece. So I would, daddy would come home from work and she would run and go, daddy, daddy, daddy. And I would kiss her and put her down and take my hair off. And I thought my poor child is thinking (laughs) that every father comes home. She's going to be pulling on the hair of her friend's father's, thinking everybody's, every father's hair comes off. But she didn't, she got over that. Now, when I was cast on Voyager, Gina, my younger daughter was about four and a half, close to five, four and a half. Um, Nikki would have been about six and a half. And as I said, I thought Nikki understood what I did for a living. Gina just didn't get, she watched Star Trek and she couldn't, the thing that disturbed her the most is that I was so mean and unhappy looking in the show because she was used to me smiling all the time. And she, I remember her, the first Star Trek episode, she said, why are you so mad? Why so mad? Why daddy so mad? (laughs) And then in another episode, very early on in the series, like the second or third episode, there was a, there was a, a, my, Something went wrong with my, um, with my hollow program, and my my Holo, my image was shrunk down. They digitally shrank my ke- down to the size of like a, a fire hydrant, so I was squat and squished up. And I remember distinctly, she's watching this and utterly fascinated. It goes, "Daddy, get small. Daddy get small." And then she turned to me and went, "Do it, daddy. <laughs> like, I, like, I was, <laughs> like it was a secret parlor trick that I'd hidden from her. Okay, her sister, who I thought understood that surprised me a few weeks, you know, into the first Voyager has been on the air, maybe, I don't know, two or three months. And she said, Daddy, why do you have to drive to the studio every day? Why doesn't Voyager just fly over our house and beam you aboard?
1: (laughs) Oh, wow, that's great.
0: So I had, to, I said, it's time for you guys. And I brought. I remember bringing them the first time, so they could see what you know exactly. And the, it's great to go. So there's nothing more make believe than a than a Star Trek series, and and those wonderful sets that we have. That oh, those wonderful sets, extraordinary.
1: So I had Jack, and I it, that I was pregnant in the fourth season. I had Jack for the fifth season, and I brought him to my trailer every day. And so I had a little crib in my trailer, and. Uh, Brent was his godfather. He was used to seeing Michael Dorn and wharf makeup. He didn't know who Michael Dorn was if Michael Dorn would come to the house. And, and, and uh, Uncle Brent was always like in this gold makeup, you know, it was like, that was odd. And he loved running around the set. I mean, that was fantastic for him. You know, he learned to walk on the bridge. He, I literally would take him and he'd be walking up and down when he was a toddler. So it was, it was a, a big thing in his life at that period for sure and I don't think he he really didn't understand um that's why I always say at conventions when when they were showing me my likeness for the the first action figure and he was he had to be like two or something he was going mommy doll mommy doll you know and mm-hmm. I I went oh you know, he thinks that every mommy has a doll
0: like this, uh, <laughs> you know. we I, I had the same experience, Daddy the doll, as I was known. Uh, I used to ride shotgun in the Barbie car with this cute blonde driving. I remember <laughs> I, I was this little bald guy in a spacesuit would be, you know, in the, oh, uh, in the passenger seat. Uh, and I, I, I was known it. as Daddy the doll.
1: <laughs> so what have you learned from those two wonderful daughters? What have you learned from them uh, individually, together? that you didn't know before. It's like I'm at that period of my life, especially during the pandemic, where I've been very reflective. Mm-hmm. And I feel I've learned so much from being a parent and watching um, my son grow into a man. And it's, it's something to watch. What have you learned, perhaps even about yourself, that you didn't know 20 years ago?
0: Well, there's so many things, it's kind of hard to... First of all, they come from the factory different, it's children, you know what I mean? There's a certain amount, they come out of the box different, so to speak. I remember Bill Broyles, who, uh, who co-wrote China Beach, said the, mo- the most, you know, you're given this thing, this little baby, it's the most, it, it's the biggest challenge or responsibility of your life and there's no owner's manual. I remember he joked right when my first child was born. It's true to a certain extent. You can read the books of advice on parenting you can look at how your friends parent and perhaps admire their choices over others, but ultimately, the most important thing is that they feel uh, safe. They trust. They they trust in your love and feel safe and secure when they're young with you. And absolutely. Um, and I, uh, you know, I. I, I uh, both of them had little flirtations with acting at different times. My, my older daughter, Nikki, who was by far the shyer one when she was younger, her experience in theater in high school sort of mirrored my own. She went from being a relatively shy child, although I wasn't as shy as she was, but she really found in play, in, in acting on stage in characters that were, had nothing to do with her. My, my daughter played Tevia in Fiddler on the Roof because she went to a girls' school. And she was great. Um, but she could be so much, it gave her so much more confidence and to to be able to express herself through a character, which you might say, you might call it hiding behind a character, but whatever, you get you, you, you have, you have the so much more freedom. Uh if 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 you spark to the acting bug, you find all this freedom in playing a character that and doing things that you couldn't do as yourself. Self at that age.
1: Well, I I also so think I think that people people learn people learn when they try acting whether they want to be an actor in their life or not. I think it's a really really useful thing for everybody to try to Um, play another character. You learn about yourself, I think, when you are studying a character and you're putting different words and trying to come up with that that character's thoughts. You learn something about yourself. You don't have to want to make a career out of it to learn. So I think it's great for kids to try that, just like it's great to learn how to deal with speaking in front of a group of people, Um, just how to deal with with, uh, being nervous, all sorts of things. But what did you learn about yourself, through your kids well
0: I I learned what was most important I guess it sounds cliche what's most important in life my career became far less important to me the moment my first child was born acting that it takes on the responsibility of giving them of you know of earning money to give them everything they want but as far as my own, I would say that the biggest because the biggest joy of my life was being a parent, that it just, it just made, um, the, the career got put in a different light. It was not, you know, it wasn't the most important thing the way it seemed up until that point. So, and it, so I guess what I'd say, I learned the most of what, what to value most in life. And, uh, we have a great relation. My, Kids and I enjoy each other's company. We can, even though they're adults now, they enjoy doing something with their with their dad, going on, you know, whether it's seeing a play together or going to listen to music or just having a meal together. They And they, this is the longest I've ever gone to bring it back home to the pandemic. I will have not seen both my daughters for a year for the first time in their lives. Wow.
1: That's and, hard. Uh,
0: and it's been really hard. It's great to, I'm in communication with them all the time. I talk to them sometimes on right. FaceTime every day, every other day. Uh, right. You know, right. Every week. So we talk, we text, we email everything all the time. My, my younger daughter, Gina, is a professional editor and she and I have, she got me started with a YouTube channel and she edits all of my videos. I mean, she's, she's, she's got more work than she can possibly do. She does sometimes two jobs at once. And during the pandemic, both my kids are working away like crazy because they're both yeah, in careers great. in post-production. The younger one an editor, Nikki, uh, the older one is in visual effects. She is a flame artist, which is the software uh, that does uh, digital correction in movies and television. And she is a, what's called a beauty specialist <laughs> and a senior flame artist. So, she said, My job is usually to make impossibly beautiful women look more beautiful, um, uh, which, <laughs> she, which, which she says I object to on certain moral grounds, but I do cash the checks. Both my kids have great senses of humor. They both make extraordinary faces, which I realize are their dad's faces over the changing table when I was changing their diapers. They now, I see expressions <laughs> on their face that are absolutely mine. Uh, and uh, they, Love to make fun of me, to poke fun at me. They'll constantly bring up something I did when they were young that I've long since forgotten. Something stupid that I would say when they were two and three and four years old that they remember that I've forgotten. Like that's wonderful. Once in a while, my kids, if they, if they're teasing me, they'll say, okie dokie, hokey pokey, which is apparently something I used to say to them when they were three, which I don't remember, but they love to, they love to pull out the corniest. Things I've said and done from their entire lives, and and uh, revisit them just <laughs> to amuse each other when they're together. They were together in yeah. my apartment in New York this past weekend. Um, I needed some things sent to me, so my younger daughter Gina, who lives in Upper Manhattan, who just got a corgi puppy and is in love with this dog, and the dog is now house changed. She brought the dog to my apartment uh, in the, on the West Side, and and my. And my other daughter from Brooklyn came and they met and had dinner and everything and talked to me on the phone. It was kind of like yeah, I was there. It was sort of fun.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow.
0: Is there
1: anything that you would have done better with them? Are there things that you you felt you didn't guide them as strongly in? Or are there things that are your weaknesses that sometimes surface in them? Um, and you go, well, they probably got that from me, and, and now I'm going to try to help them to overcome that.
0: Yeah, boy, you ask very interesting and deep questions. Um for a while, when I was young, I wondered if I made the right decision sending them to girls' schools. They both wanted to go to girls' schools at that age. Mm. And then, of course, at a certain age, you sort of, they. I could see them wondering whether they made the right choice. They went to mm. really good, academically strong, private girls' schools in Pasadena. Two, of course, my children, they went to competing. Rather than the same girls' school, they had to go to competing oh. girls' schools. Um, but uh, I think in retrospect, they're both very happy for that experience. Um, uh, and, you know, when they talk to other of their peers who went, you know, who had whole different issues in high school, uh, going to uh, co-ed schools, uh, they see the pros and cons of it now, but they're grateful for the great educations they got. They both went. Um, but, but I wonder if sometimes, because It's. Let's face it. It seems hard. It's it's impossible for them. You can't date during a pandemic. And I feel great sense of loss for them that at this age in their lives, you know, uh, that you cannot be around other people. I mean, I know this is the same for the whole world, but... When you're at a time in your life when you normally, I mean, Nikki had just started dating someone for several months and their relationship is going quite well, although a lot of it is remote. They didn't see each other for two or three months other than, you know, until, until they uh, felt uh, safe, you know, meeting outside at first. And then when they were both, you know, and then at, at a certain point they would start meeting together inside. Well, that's a whole, who else, what other you know yeah. what other generation has had to deal with the generation that you know of no, it's young been brutal. people now and Absolutely so I, brutal. Would, yeah. I you know i but I, I if i had things to do over again i can't quite tell you what they are but i would i i would have worked even harder i guess to i gave them all the confidence of knowing that i loved them deeply but i think i would have I would have worked harder at giving them even more confidence in themselves as Mm. bright. You know what I mean? We, we, we do a lot of, um, uh, we have, we all have a sarcastic streak, my daughters and I both, we, we do a lot of poking fun. And I think sometimes, uh, I I think it I, I would have been, I would have been more dead on sincere and less, uh, and, and a little less sarcastic, I think, even, even in ways that they knew I was teasing them and making them laughing. Does that make sense? More?
1: It makes total, it's, it's actually, it's quite beautiful actually to hear you say that. I think it's, it is one of those things that there are times, first of all, sometimes for those of us who love humor and sarcasm, being sincere is a very, it's a very strong commitment. And, um, it's just like in in design to do the most simple thing is actually much harder than doing something that's rococo because you have to just find the perfect form sincerity true sincerity is a commitment and i think it's lovely what you said obviously you can't one can't be totally sincere every moment nor should one necessarily but i think I know that your daughters feel unconditional love from you. You can see it when you're around them. You feel it. And that's a wonderful thing. So clearly you've given them the biggest gift that you could have given them. Being a mother has been the greatest, bar none, greatest experience of my life. Uh, And it continues. I still am growing and learning. And I feel what's extraordinary is to have that wonderful experience of your child excelling in places that I don't feel I ever could excel, but I'm watching someone else do it, and it's, it's a beautiful thing to see them metamorphosize into, or, or is that the word? I don't know. They're, they're, there's a transformation that goes on, you know, from being someone who's holding on to your hand and all of that, and it's a beautiful thing. It's 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 a uh, something that I. I keep learning from every time I'm in touch with my son. And I, too, miss deeply those connections of being able to have just—he's much taller. He's 6'3". He just can put that arm around me. And it's, huh. it's the most lovely, deep feeling of— comfort and love that, you know, you can share. And I can tell immediately when I annoy him, I now understand how to change that behavior better than I have before, (laughs) even though I keep annoying him. But that's wonderful because you keep growing, right? Uh, I've learned so much from my child and also my nephew and my niece with whom I'm very close. They have given me hope. Some of the young people are having a very rough time right now with the pandemic. But I really believe in uh, in youth. I've met more wonderful young people than I I can count and I'm really impressed with how they're dealing with things and and I can just hope that uh, they're going to be okay. It's going to take them a while to pull themselves together once the pandemic is over, but they are at the future.
0: Agreed. And and I um I I can't I I, I booked because I got my first Shot of vaccine. One of the very first things I did was sort of count the days and when I when it'll be two weeks after the second shot, and I booked flights uh, yesterday uh, so I could be there for my daughter's uh, birthday in mid March because Aww. it's a year is too long. So, so I'm all excited that I'll finally see the two of them in about in about six weeks. So.
1: That's, Isn't that great? Because uh, we're we're both mm-hmm. we're both going to get our vaccines the same day, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and and maybe we'll run into each other at the airport when we go to see our kids.
0: <laughs> Does your son live in uh, in New York?
1: No, he's now in Louisville. Oh. Uh, he's with the Louisville Orchestra. Oh. And he also is composing. Mm-hmm. He's doing things. And I have one more question and theme I, I'm really mm-hmm. interested in talking with you about. If you are able to give me sure. a, a few more minutes, and that is. Social media. It seems to me that so much of all of the social media is basically selling ourselves to people who we want them to buy what we're selling. Uh, we want to be liked. We want to be popular. We we are. It's self-promotion. It's watch this, listen to my podcast, do this. And we have just become this society of selling ourselves. And, and we're either a seller and buying this or liking this and I feel I'm caught up in it. Gloria Steinem said, we always are rating each other. It's like we get someone who says, who is the most popular captain? Who's your favorite captain? Who was the best doctor on Star Trek? And what happens is the people who are asking those questions just want more people to get involved so they will show that there's a lot of um, traffic. They want the traffic and they want to be liked and they want people to subscribe. When we were doing the fundraiser for Joe Biden, and then we did another one for the Georgia uh, runoff, I was so impressed and blown away by the actors who were part of the Star Trek world. And I thought, yeah, we are a community. We were there, and it was not about who was the better this, who was the better that, who's more popular. Everybody had something really interesting to say. And it was such a relief to feel I was part of a community and not think about it in terms of popularity. Have you felt any of these things, or am I just obsessing about something that is silly?
0: A lot of things. I mean, I got involved with social media, um, what's the word, in in a sort of a defensive posture, kind of like there was a time 10 years ago when – it was like, oh, uh, producers are interested if you have an online following and that if you want to continue to work as an actor, you have to promote your brand name. I mean, I heard all these things. It was like, really? You have to do that? I've had a career thus far without doing that. But but I was sort of, I, I felt like I was kind of browbeaten. I've never been a Facebook fan. Facebook has so much people. It seems it's got so many people are going, look how fabulous my life is. For example, I have a, a friend, a, a couple that, you know, if you looked at her Facebook, she, you thought she thought her boyfriend was the best thing ever. And then, you know, and there were all these wonderful things. And then like two months later, out of nowhere, she completely just sort of dumped him. And I wanted to say to her, well, don't you read your Facebook posts? Don't you? Know, don't you know how wonderful your <laughs> life? I mean, it, it, it was like literally she dumped him so quickly after one of these <laughs> glowing posts that I thought, I wonder how much people get absorbed into creating the impression that their life is fabulous, regardless of how fabulous it really is. So Facebook right. has never been a a, a big. I, I, I've you know that's the one that kind of scares me the most. Twitter, Twitter, and Instagram. I use mostly as a, well, Instagram certainly, I try to entertain people and I try to make entertaining either photographs or usually videos. During the lockdown, because I had no other outlet, I started to make comedy videos, playing multiple characters. Um, I play the world's oldest gigolo, Alfonso. I play a, a character version of myself. I play a police detective. Now I have a brand new one called The Telepathic Composer who creates music in your head while he's looking at you. I do these little 30 and 45-second sketches as an outlet for me as a performer so that I feel creative. I've turned my doctor wife into a cinematographer and she shoots the videos. So it's a project (laughs) that we do together. We go on location. We've shot them on boats in the water. We just... And it's something we do just to amuse ourselves. And it it became a way of sort of giving a little gift in social media to people who were locked down and bored and had nothing else to do but look on the internet. I thought I'm gonna do something that hopefully will make people smile. And it was really modeled on Brent Spiner making that incredibly hilarious video last spring where he sings, They Want Me Back. And I thought, what a great thing to make something like that and kind of give it to your fans. And I just thought the world of what he did. So my first video was, was, right. was a, was an homage to Brent Spiner. Right. And then I started making other ones. So I've been, this is, it's been fun. i loved, I've loved doing it and it's made me feel somewhat less alone during all this, knowing that, That people would get back and say, oh, Robert, I love that you make me laugh every time you do this. What a great time it's been to have something like this. So I get genuine responses that I'm that I'm proud of and I'm happy to see. So that's um, lovely.
1: Um, That's very lovely. And that makes perfect sense to me because i i think if if it is a way for someone to be creative and it's an outlet and you and you want to have a connection to to fans i think it's it's terrific but then here i am doing a podcast which i never i mean i didn't come up with this idea on my own you know it was mm-hmm. it, it was someone said we want you to do this and i think many times in my life it's been something like that something falls into my lap and i i'm sort of in a position of okay do you want to learn or do you want to just like turn off and close off to an opportunity. And I think it clearly is a good thing to take uh, opportunities, to be creative, to try new things. Even if you're going to fail, it's better to try. And that's true about love. That's true about experiencing life, I think. It's good to go forward. It's good to open yourself up, discover things, be curious.
0: I agree. Having said all of that, because we came out of a period, well, we're still in a period of division in this country. But it, it you know, you get a lot of, um, I got a lot of angry remarks about how um, actors, entertainers should just entertain and shut up, should not have political opinions. You get a lot right. of uh, right. stuff like that which always baffled me because if, you know, it's like, if any, if people in other careers are allowed to have opinions, why, uh, and also we're not, people seem to have to be reminded we're on social media. We're not, we're not being paid to entertain you. If we're on social media That's voluntarily, right. it's a voluntary contract. If people want to follow you, let them follow you. If they don't like what you're saying, stop following you. Don't, don't exactly. try, don't exactly. scream at actors and tell them they have, no right, you know, unless they're the actors that have your political point of view.
1: People who say that to me, though, I say, well, OK, I'm also a mother. I'm also a teacher. I have been a teacher. So uh, are, are teachers and, and parents allowed to have opinions? Are they allowed to be on social media? Why is it just actors?
0: But I do admire, to get back to your original point about the, um, for example, the, the, the uh, fundraising events that you were part of, I was invited to be part of the second one. And then I was disinvited because I guess somebody had seen how I, I am, my message sometime, my, my own humor, my own sarcasm, my own, my own delight in parodying a situation somehow, somehow works against me. Because they, they looked at my posts and saw, I think that the people that are disciplined among our actor group that were for, that wanted to promote a candidate, but they were disciplined enough in social media to present only the positive side of that candidate, not the negative side of the candidate running, they were running against are the people that I think ended up helping the most. So I learned a lesson that sometimes, Bob, the cheap joke Against the opponent is not the way to go if you really want to influence the way people think because I had done a lot of I had done a lot of um, you know I don't my remember feeling you was, doing that Well my feeling was let's put it this way if the if the prior occupant of the White House could make fun of other people could ridicule other people then he then then he was putting himself in a situation where if you could right. dish it out you okay. got to be able to take it So my feeling was I did a lot of satire and parody and things like that and I think, um because uh, they reviewed my particular tweet of the day which was something like um that we didn't uh, that that uh voters of a certain party shouldn't bother to vote in Virginia and in, in Georgia excuse me because the because it was so rigged anyway if we were to believe one person because the election had been ringed why bother to go out um Georgia Republicans and vote well that was deemed to be that sort of snarky message got me uh, kind well, of wait a minute mixed. how
1: how are you are you really sure that that this was deemed? Offensive? I mean, do you know uh, that you well, were? Well, uh,
0: I don't know that that was the comment, but I was—I I had been invited, and then I was—and uh, then I was graciously, really, and very sensitively disinvited. Yes, um, but we could talk about that for a very
1: But it also—it also might might not have had anything to do with that, too. It also might have it had might to have. do that with. That was
0: my theory. That was know. my theory. But, okay, well, uh, I think uh, you I might be, be being
1: hard on yourself because I don't have that memory at all. I, I really think that you were wonderful. And uh, I, I think it probably had to do with how many people were on the screen. We were getting so many people that it was at a point mm-hmm. where, you know, after 10 people say something, it's very hard to come up with something interesting to say after 10 people have said, said a comment. But if you feel that way, what that t- what that actually ties in with is what you were talking about, the sin- being more sincere with your kids. I think we all have ways that we protect ourselves. And I spent most of my life protecting myself. It's just hiding our true vulnerable selves. And the more you realize that you're actually much healthier and more likable when you are more authentic, when you're just yourself and less afraid and less defended. But that, uh, you know... I had an astrologer who told me it was going to take me most of my life to figure out who I was, and they were so—the bastard was right, okay? Because I'm still basically really going, I don't know who the hell I really am. Uh, so, you know, it's life, but it's a wonderful life, uh, and I'm very, very happy that you agreed to do this podcast. I've learned something about you, and uh, it's you. a pleasure—
0: it's a so pleasure. unique. This is, first of all, it, I see why they wanted you to do this, because you have a unique voice, and I mean that in the, in the big sense of a voice. You have a, unique, uh, you have a unique, uh, unique attack on doing a podcast. I don't just mean the beautiful richness of the sound of your voice. I mean, this is unlike any other one I've ever <laughs> guested on. And I'd like to close, since we started with my family, uh, I want to do two super quick stories my father who passed away when I was 9, my brother and I recently had a conversation about how lucky we were to have the parents we did and I said something like, you know, Joe because Joe's my brother. Because my dad died, our dad died when I was so young. I I wonder sometimes if he would have been proud of me, if he would have been happy that I became an actor mm. because you know, he was he was first generation born in America and I kind of skipped, you know, the, the The immigrants come and they work in selling fruit or whatever they have to do. Then the first generation become the business people. The second generation become doctors and lawyers, the professional people. That's what I was supposed to do. And then the third generation entered the arts. That was the way I... Sort of mm. thought that was the way you you, you lived in America. Uh, you know, you had to do something practical to 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 warrant your your place here. And I short-circuited that by going from the practical career um, ambition of become of being a doctor and went into the arts. And my brother said, I think he would have loved it. You know, dad, my father loved to speak publicly. He was president of the Lions Club. He was in all of the Sons of Italy, these service organizations. He ran a yearly banquet for the blind. My father was a huge give back to the community person and loved to mm-hmm. stand up in front of people and talk. So my, my brother recently told me, he thought my dad would have loved me being an actor and having people get on the bus and come to New York to see me when I was in a Broadway show. And then my mother, I want to say one other thing for the benefit of any Star Trek fans who've sat through this. My mother lived long enough to go to one Star Trek convention. It was in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. Mm. And my mother could barely watch Star Trek because she didn't understand what it was about. She didn't quite get it, <laughs> uh, but she came to that convention. She got to meet George Takei, It was very sweet to her. She sat in the audience and watched these people asking me questions on stage. And laughing at my responses. And then afterwards, because I pointed her out in the audience, people wanted to take pictures with her. She looked at me with this expression, I'll never forget it. And like, you know, Bobby, I don't quite understand it, but I, I feel, I feel good about this for you. It was like, she was saying, Hmm. I think these people are going to take care of you. They seem to like you enough and <laughs> what you're doing that they're going to be loyal to you. And she felt good about experiencing that and then within a year she was gone. But I I never forgot that how that sweet shy smile she had on her face Taking pictures with the Star Trek fans at her one and only that's Star Trek convention. So that's one of the reasons, folks, that I love Star Trek fans. Okay, <laughs> because yeah, that's that's they embraced you see, my mother, my favorite, you know, my favorite person. You in life. are
1: so much sweeter than I am. Yeah, that's such a lovely two stories, and I think it's wonderful. You know, the love of your parents and knowing, feeling that your father would have looked down with pride at your life uh, and your two daughters. I mean, I know that that certainly he would have uh, adored them. Uh, I, on the other hand, when I was going, um, coming to Cleveland Hopkins Airport, uh, Jack had thrown up on the plane. He was, uh, I think about, (laughs) he was like about one and a half or one. And I just reeked of, you know, vomit all down my front. Still, even though I tried to, I spent the whole flight in the restroom, and uh, and my father is picking me up at the uh, at the airport, and he's so proud I'm on the show. I mean, it's like it's just he would carry my headshots in his briefcase, and every he was a hardware salesman, <laughs> and everywhere he'd go, he of course would have the briefcase open up, and then they'd see me, and then they'd ask him, and he'd say, "Oh yeah, that's my daughter," you know. So he was so proud. But a woman comes up just as I'm getting into our car and she says, oh, excuse me, excuse me. Are, are you Gates McFadden on Star Trek? You look so much like her. And I was just in that mood and I turned around and said, no, no, I'm not. And I got in the car and I turned around and there's my father nodding to her, pointing at me. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. <laughs> so then I felt like a complete liar and a bitch. And there's my father saying, yes, she is. And I Busted was so my mean dad. to this. Oh, it was terrible. It was terrible. And I, I really was humbled by that. I thought, oh God, now, now this poor fan thinks I'm just a liar scumbag. Well, here's to our vaccinations on, on the 21st, I think it is, Sunday. Mm-hmm. You, It's going to be you and me, baby, okay? And, uh, and millions of others, I hope. But I love well, thank you. You. Thank thank you. Thank you so much. I love you
0: too. Thank you so much for having me. This was a, a, a real, real pleasure. And I learned something. Oh,
1: thank you. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Robert Picardo. Yep, I learned something too. Not only about him, but also about how connected I am to my extended space family. Next week's episode is with Denise Crosby, where she talks about her journey into writing, about her past, and about her plans for the future. Hope you will join me for Investigates Who Do You Think You Are? In the meantime, as your pretend doctor, may I ask that you continue to wash those hands and wear masks? Above all, stay safe. Thanks for listening.